If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Turn to Exodus 20. There are Bibles in the back if you need one as we continue our study. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, a gospel perspective. The Ten Commandments, a gospel perspective. Um, after we're done with this series, we may do a short series on the nature and purpose of the church. We haven't decided that yet. But we, the next book we're going to be jumping into, expository preaching, is what we do here, is the book of Philippians. So we'll be looking at in the fall, maybe sometime in September, the latest, October 1st. So if you, um, in your Bible reading, I, I want to encourage you to uh, open up the book of Philippians. The children are dismissed at this time as well. Um, so re- be reading the book of Philippians, the book of joy, gospel joy. Um, together we'll study that as the fall approaches. So Ten Commandments, Gospel Perspective, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 is our text. I'll read uh, the entirety of the Ten Commandments, and then we'll look at verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, book of the Torah, the book of Moses, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words. It's God who spoke them. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seven days is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Commandment number five. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God has given you. Commandment number six. You shall not murder. And commandment number seven. Aren't you glad I'm preaching this one? You shall not commit adultery. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. As we said, theologians have broken the Ten Commandments into two tables of the law. The first four commandments primarily show or or reveal to us uh, a relationship with God. The second table of the law, law, number five through ten, is more focused on our relationship with one another. But, as we said, you can't make that kind of distinction because as we see today, once again, if you keep the first two commandments, it's connected with loving one another. You won't break the other commandments as with adultery. You have to first cheat on and have adultery on God before you can then have a adulterous relationship on your spouse. First commandment, one God. The second commandment, worship him and him alone. Adultery doesn't come until the seventh, but you don't get to the seventh until you violate the first two. It only happens when we first commit spiritual adultery by worshiping other gods than the one true God. In fact, 
If you read your Old Testament, God calls Israel's unfaithfulness adultery. Why? Because it's breaking the covenant that he made with them. You have prophets like Ezekiel and prophets like Jeremiah with with great detail call out Israel's repulsive act of spiritual adultery as, this is not my word, this is God's word, as whoring around with other gods. I'll be trying to be careful today. I realize we have some kids here. It's going to be a very hard sermon. Sorry for that. Well, actually, I'm not sorry. We'll get to lying. That was a lie. That's two more commandments. <laughs> I'm not sorry that it's hard. Sometimes we need to hear hard stuff. Hard stuff helps us keep our hearts soft. Right? Thank you, Tony. Charles Spurgeon, he knows this one too, I'm sure. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. Right? So as we get into this, my hope is that it softens our hearts, that we're listening and we're hearing and we're willing to repent if necessary. It's a very difficult topic, important, obviously. And let's remember its context, right? Israel has been redeemed. They've been rescued. They've been delivered from slavery by grace alone. Brought into a relationship with God, the creator, sovereign Lord of the universe, by grace alone. He didn't have to redeem them. He didn't have to free them. He didn't have to free or deliver or redeem any of us, but he does. He is kind, he is merciful, he is good, he is just, he is gracious. He fulfills his covenantal promises to his people. And so he frees us, he redeems us from slavery to sin, death and hell. And now Israel is obligated to respond to that grace in obedience, not to earn grace, but because of God's grace. And let's also remember that when Jesus comes on the scene, he says that he will fulfill the law. And then he ushers in the new covenant promise of redemption by his complete obedience to the law and his atoning death as our substitute, dying in our place. And by faith, we are forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. And by faith, his righteousness is imputed or reckoned. It's an accounting term, accounting term, on our account. And then he sends the Holy Spirit after he rises from the dead to regenerate us. That's the agent of regeneration to give us a new heart, empowering us to obey God's commands. But we also see in Jesus and his teaching in the New Testament, we'll see in a minute, that he makes the law actually more difficult. Right? He doesn't lessen the requirements of law. He actually increases it. We saw this last week. Pastor Chris did a great job. He's on vacation. You could pray for him as he spends some time away. Um, Matthew 5, remember what he says about murder. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. You have heard that it was said, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. But whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, well, it is something different. He's liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire, to the hell of fire. Okay? increases the reality of the Ten Commandments. We see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Where did you hear that, Jesus? I wrote it in chapter 20, of verse 14 in the book of Exodus. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better lose a member of the body and go to, go to hell. The right hand caused you to sin. It has to do with lusting and adultery. Cut it, throw it out. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. The word lustful intent in Matthew 5.27 is epithemeo. It means this over-desire to covet, to long for. It's not saying, oh, that person may be handsome or that person may be pretty. It's a sin when we epithomeo, when we, when we, we desire, over-desire, when we covet, when we linger, when we lust. Someone once said, you know, the first look, you can give God glory. The second look is for your own selfishness. The third look's for the devil. Adultery, in other words, begins with the eyes, but it really is a matter of the heart. Job 31.1, right? A covenant with my eyes, Job says. I made a promise to my eyes not to look on the lust of a young woman. Jesus is not saying, you know what, it's, Sexual intimacy outside of marriage is okay as long as your heart is okay. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if we don't commit the act itself, we're still guilty of sin if we are going there without thoughts, fantasies, reading, clicking with our affections. Jesus is saying it's not just what you do with your body. It's what you look at and what you do with your hearts. In other words, adultery begins with the heart. My heart, your heart. Before it ever becomes an issue physically. We all agree. Three things. The context of adultery is marriage. The destruction of adultery that, that causes, whether it's divorce or de- dis- destroying relationships. And then the solution. We don't want to leave down, we want to leave up. We want to look to the gospel. That is the solution. It's going to get quiet in here, okay. That's all right. <laughs> Let's first define what marriage is and is not. That's the context. Marriage is not something, no matter what you're being told, marriage is not something that man creates or created, or instituted. And therefore, because man did not create or institute marriage, man does not get to define it. It's that simple. God does. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, right? Genesis chapter 1. When we turn to Genesis chapter 2, we have the same creation account, this time from a much different lens, a, a, a closer lens, where God creates Adam out of the ground, he breathes life into him, and then he places Adam into the garden to work it and to keep it. Those words actually used of worship. But then... God said in chapter 2, verse 18, not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helpmate, fit for him. And as the story goes, he puts Adam to sleep, right? Takes a rib out of his side, not his head, not his feet. Takes out of his side. And when Adam wakes up and sees his new naked wife, he sings a song. 
Genesis chapter 22. Chapter 2, chapter two verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the male he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, really a song, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The first giving of the bride, right? So God creates Eve, the woman, out of man and brings the woman to the man. This teaches us that God created, initiated, designed, and ordained marriage to be with one man and one woman. God created marriage in such a way that that this relationship, this union, fit together. One man, one woman, uniquely fit together as complements, each for the other. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, you have it up here in verse 24, when it says that a man shall hold fast to his wife, the Hebrew word for man is ish, I-S-H, ish. The one for woman is ish-ha. You see the joining of together. We see this complementary action, how the woman was formed, the name she was given, and how she alone is the suitable helpmate for the man. It is his wife, verse 24. When man and women come together in this one flesh relationship, in the context of marriage, it's not simply just a union, but almost like a a reunion, a reunion. They, They were literally made for each other. So this idea that marriage can be, you know, any arrangement of any two people who love each other, committed to each other exclusively is not what God intended. There is exclusivity because that is what our God Our creator God declares, designs, creates, initiates, and ordains concerning marriage. A one woman uniquely fitted for one man. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Malachi, interesting enough, says this. Malachi, Malachi, if you're Italian, Malachi. Chapter 2, he's speaking to Judah. the, The southern king, two kingdoms. The northern kings already fell. And he says this. You cover... The Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Talking to Judah. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless or treacherous, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a, por- a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The marriage defined by God is described as a covenant, a covenant bond between two people, a man and a woman. God is a covenant-making God, and we are called to be a covenant-making people. And covenants involve a verbal oath and a ratification, a sign, which we see all throughout the Scripture. The verbal oath is that solemn promise, right? The vows that you make and we make before God and these witnesses. And this act, this, this sign, this act of sexual consummation and ratification signs and seals the covenant, which produce what? Godly offspring. 
God seeks godly offspring from this one flesh relationship between a husband, the union between a husband and a wife, a deliberate echo here in Malachi of the creation accounts. Only a man and a woman can be fruitful and multiply. Only with an understanding of that, of this, this sexual complementarianism, uh, uh, complementarity, does the storyline of Genesis 1 and 2 even make sense? God designed, initiated, and instituted marriage to be the kind of relationship, as we see in Genesis, in Malachi, that can result in new life. Okay? Not that procreation is the sole purpose of marriage, or that sexual intimacy in a marriage is is only for having children. But it would also be wrong to declare marriage, or to think and to describe marriage, it can't be probably defined without reference to offspring, to, to a union between a husband and a wife that can produce new life. Therefore, by definition, marriage is the sort of union from which children can be conceived. Now, there are, there are, there are other issues. There are medical issues, possible age issues, result maybe in a childless marriages. That's not the point. You all know the point I'm making. A marriage defined by God is when a woman and a man are joined in covenant that can have the ability, okay, I've got to be careful what I say, to produce offspring. And let me say this. With, with, with all the gender confusion and deception going on in our culture, our government has now decided to redefine marriage outside of God's design and God's purposes. In our culture, we don't believe that people are made male and female. We believe, or they were being taught, that God makes and you know people that uh, are androgynous. They determine themselves what gender they are, what their identity is. You're a person; you get to decide if you want to live whatever gender you want. God's word is clear. God made us male and female. God defines who we are. God defines who we are. And when we are connected to him through repentance and faith, we will have true joy. Not fake joy, not short-lived joy. We will have full joy when we are walking with our creator God in the way in which God has made us. And I want to be sensitive here. Okay, I want to be sensitive. But We also need to be confident in Scripture. We also need to affirm the Word of God as Christ's followers who don't define marriage as simply a civil union between two people like the world does. We let God define marriage because He is the creator. He is the designer. He is the initiator of marriage. And we understand that it is for our good and our joy and for His glory. If we don't let God define marriage, who is to say that it should remain monogamous? Why not polygamy? It's coming. Especially with all the uh, uh, gender deception out there. I'll, I'll I'll need male and female to complete me. The truth is gender is ultimately determined by anatomy, biology, and theology. God is declared not by individuality. Christians believe God who said he made us male and female in his image and likeness and that marriage is not just a civil union but it is by definition, by God's definition, a covenant. 
between one man and one woman with consummation between the two. Remember Paul's words. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible says that the world in its wisdom does not know God. The mind does not know God. It is hostile to God. It does not understand his laws. In fact, it cannot submit to them. So, so let, me, let me say lovingly and pastorally, we need to be humble people, holding to the truth of God's word. We need to love all people. I am in no way, and you all know me, I would in no way say we should hate others or reject others. We need to share the gospel with everyone. With everyone. There are people that are in bondage and need to be set free. And you can only be set free when you've been born again by the Spirit and walk faithfully with our God and what God has created you to be. Okay? The context of adultery is marriage, and we have to define marriage the way God defines it as God's people. It's that simple. Now, the destruction of adultery. It's getting even more quiet. I, I, I don't have any statistics, but I can tell you from my, just my own personal observation, it's the number one reason for church discipline. The number one reason for destruction of homes is adultery. As we said from Scripture, marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman, and, and, and God has given us sexual intimacy as a gift within that covenant of marriage, so therefore, generally speaking, Adultery is any form of sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage, breaking the bonds of a marriage covenant, the promise that people, man and woman, has made before God. So the primary purpose of this commandment is to protect, guard, keep marriage. And adultery is, is a great sexual sin because it violates trust between a husband and a wife. And the Bible confirms how important this is and how devastating it is for the penalty for adultery. Ready for this? Some of you know this already. Leviticus 20, chapter 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbors, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Can't get any more serious than that. And notice I said adultery is any form of sexual intimacy outside the covenant of marriage of one man and one woman, rather than get into all the different things that are out there right now. I, I don't know if any of you experienced this. They find out you're a Christian, you know the Bible. I met people for about 30 seconds. 30 seconds into my conversation with somebody. They find out I'm a pastor within 30 seconds. They're like, uh, what do you believe about homosexuality? What do you, I'm like, really? I mean, how about where I live, where did I come? I mean, I'd go jump right to that. One man, one woman, covenant marriage is easier to say, right? It's just, it's, just, it's easier, it, it, it's biblical, it's direct. One man, one woman, everything outside of that is sin. Some people say Jesus never talked about homosexuality or fornication, which is sex and sin outside of marriage. It's not true. It's not true. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For within, out of the heart, Jesus says, the heart of man... comes evil thoughts. What else? Sexual immorality. Theft, murder, adultery. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He's not mixing in terms here. This is all bad stuff. All these things come from within and they defile the person. Sexual immorality is the word porneia, as I said. It's it's, it's a broad term, like a junk drawer. Everybody got a junk drawer at home, right? You don't know what to do with it, put it in that drawer. That's that's porneia. Like, I don't know what to do with that. 
put it in that draw. It's sexual sin. It's, it's, it violates the law of Moses, right? But he also used the word in Mark chapter 7, the word adultery, mochea, the explicit act of adultery, sex with somebody else other than your covenant spouse. Okay? If it's not getting quiet, it'll be here now. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus again affirms God's design for marriage. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered Jesus, Have you not read that he who created them, he's talking right from the Bible, from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus is affirming what we talked about earlier about Genesis. Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, the word is glue, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, yeah, really, Jesus? Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus gives him the answer. Because you're a hardness of heart. That's why Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. A couple of things going on. First, notice Jesus being tested. Jesus being tested. Right? Think about that. A Bible-thumping religious dude is testing the word who became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Like, that's not going to go well. You don't test God, but they do. Then Jesus goes back and affirms Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The word of God that God has spoke. He affirms what marriage is and therefore makes very clear what marriage is not. It is a covenant relationship, a one-union relationship, undissolvable, permanent covenant of one flesh between a man and a woman. And then he deals with the motive of divorce, of adultery, of, of what's going on in, in with the d- divorce that he's talking about. Deuteronomy 24.1 is where you find it. Moses says a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds, this is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Jesus says, you know what the motive is? I'll give you the motive. Hardness of hearts. Hardness of hearts. It's because men's hearts are hard that God, that Moses allowed divorce. Jesus was combining two things going on here. So just so you give just a little bit more background as, as before we, we go past this. So in Jesus' day, there were two theological views. That's why they, they were testing Jesus. There, were, there was two school of thoughts, two theological seminaries. One of them taught that when you find no favor in her eyes and give her a, a, a writ of certificate of divorce, no favor in her eyes means she burned the toast. Right? She didn't make coffee that great. Didn't know how to make the bed. Get rid of her. That was one school of thought. Easy divorceism. The other school of thought by the name of, uh, a man by the name of Rabbi Shammai advocated strict guidelines. Uh, uh, infidelity only. Was strictly limited under certain rigid definitions. And, and, and so Jesus is being now questioned, what side are you on? And Jesus is like, listen, the reason why we're having this conversation in the first place is because you all have hard hearts. Divorce is the exception because we live in a broken, sinful, twisted world. 
Jesus is saying divorce is living below the original story of Genesis 1 and 2 and the story in which I am declaring to you. This is why you see Jesus going back to creation before the fall, before sin enters the world. Now, I want to take a short bunny trail. I, I hate, literally, I hate to open something up without closing it. So we're going to take a short bunny trail. We'll get back. We're almost done. Well, not, well that's a lie, too. I've got to be here for two weeks. <laughs> no, we, but just, just bear with me because I think it's important because we have a lot of mixed family here. Malachi 2.16, we read it earlier, up to verse 14. Verse 16 says that God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. It doesn't say God hates divorced people. It said God hates divorce, okay? He hates it because of the brokenness. He hates it because of the sin that causes it, which many times it's adultery. And if we're honest, and if you come from a divorced home where you've been divorced yourself, you probably hate it too. It hurts emotionally. It has lingering effects on everybody's life. And this idea that at the end of a relationship is it's just a myth. It's never over. It gets complicated. But you see, doesn't the Bible give exception clause? Yes, we see one here. Matthew 19. 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment. Physical abuse, people put that category as well. But it's never defined as the will or the defined will of God. Just like sin, we're not supposed to sin. God's defined will, command, will of command, they say, is not to sin. But we do. So you say, does, does God command something? Uh, that God permits that which he hates? Yes. God hates sin, but yet he permits it. He doesn't make it happen, but in his sovereignty, within the sovereignty of his will, it happens, and he uses all things for his glory and our good. Are there exception clauses? Yes. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Jesus Christ in Matthew 19 does not command divorce for sexual sin, for adultery. Divorce is not required, but is permissible due to sexual sin. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is that sexual sin is a violation of the covenant, tears apart the oneness that marriage is supposed to be. Does divorce have to happen because of adultery? No. There can be repentance. There can be forgiveness. There can be restoration. And when there's a change of heart, when there's genuine repentance, that we, we, we pray for healing. But does that happen all the time? Unfortunately, no. When there's no change of heart, the one who has been faithful, Jesus permits to divorce and remarry. But Jesus goes on to say here in Matthew 19, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 19 that those who divorce on unbiblical grounds and remarries is committing adultery. That's what it says. And remarries another commits adultery. It says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. And let me, let me, let me, let me say this on behalf of the pastoral team. We always will roll up our sleeves and help any marriage in crises. It is always, always, always our intention, intention to look to strengthen marriage and do everything humanly possible to honor and preserve the institution and the covenant of marriage. It is never our intention to cheapen the marriage covenant or to somehow excuse sinful behavior within a marriage. We always fight for and are diligent for keeping the covenant of marriage. 
We're committed to loving you, which means we may speak the truth to you in love by rolling up our sleeves and getting involved in your life. There are serious sometimes abuses that need to be addressed, maybe a period of separation if serious sins are being forced upon you. Proverbs 15, 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. So as the pastoral team, don't let your marriage go down the drain. Be willing to listen. Be willing to seek help. Be willing to let us speak into your life. So Pastor Lou, are you saying that if I got a divorce for unbiblical reason, it's sin? Yes. Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. But are you also saying that I can be forgiven? Yes. And here's where some pastors maybe won't go there. I'm going to. Because I'm not afraid to play, I'm not going to play God and I'm not afraid to preach the word of God. If your divorce was wrong and sinful, then you need to seek forgiveness, you need to seek repentance, and God will forgive you. Right? I mean, the whole Bible is about redemption. The whole Bible is about forgiveness. The whole Bible is about Jesus who redeems. It's the entire theme of Scripture. Whether it's murder or homosexuality or robbing a bank or murder or adultery, Jesus covers that for those who are willing to repent and have their sins washed away. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus, excuse me, John says if we confess our sins, we agree with God. He is faithful. He is just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And from these wonderful promises, we learn that forgiveness is available on the basis of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for those who repent, change their mind, change their heart, change direction, and and completely rely upon the finished work of Jesus. Neither divorce or remarriage in and of itself is the unforgivable, unpardonable sin any more than murder, stealing, or lying. So I want to be gracious. I want to, we want to uphold marriage, but we want to tell you as well that God forgives and restores those who have gotten it for the wrong reason. Jay Adams, believe it or not, said this. Somehow or other, adultery and divorce for unbiblical reasons seems to be omitted from today's acceptable list of forgivable sins, even though God forgave them, end quote. I don't want to play God. I'm telling you there's repentance and forgiveness available to all who sin against him. We want to uphold the sanctity of marriage, but we recognize we live in a fallen world where sin and adultery are real. But the path of destruction... And I want you to hear this well. Remember Jesus' word. It's not simply the act. You have heard it say, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, when it looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery within her heart. So that begs the question for us this morning, family. Do we engage in adulterous conduct in our thought life? Do we engage in adulterous con- conduct in what we see? Do we look with lust at people that we see on the pages of a magazine, on a computer screen, on a TV screen, the gym, and the supermarkets. Martin Luther said, not only is the external act forbidden, but also every kind of cause, motive, and means. Your heart, your lips, and your whole body are to be chased, 
and to afford no occasion, aid, or encouragement to unchastity. In short, everyone is required both to live chastely himself and to help his neighbor do the same. Lust, adultery, violates relationships, violates the covenant that's been established by a good God for our pleasure and joy, praise and thanksgiving, marriage. Well, before we end this point, there's a negative and a positive aspect to this commandment. Sexual intimacy is given in a covenant of marriage as a gift. Right? As a gift. The physical union between a husband and wife was God's idea. He didn't wake up and say, Adam, what are you doing? Right? The Bible says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Okay, we're not talking about abuse here. And what's interesting about that text, just so you know, in that day, men commanded for their wives. It was the other way around that was so revolutionary is that the wife could say, nope, you're mine. God made us sexual beings to love, to care for, and to enjoy between husband and wife. Read the Song of Solomon if you're married. If you're not, stay away. (laughs) Chapter 1 alone. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Take me away. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And on and on and on it goes. It doesn't take an imagination to know what the Holy Spirit is saying, right? I mean, the Word of God is not pornographic, but it's unshamely sensual. The Bible celebrates the act of love within marriage as a gift for love, for pleasure, for joy in a marriage. And that's why the seventh command was given, to protect that. And let's be honest. Let's be honest. When you read Jesus' word in Matthew chapter 5 about looking at lust of someone as committing adultery, there's not a soul in this room that's outside that scope. We need to trust Christ. No one's good when it comes to the seventh commandment. Let's be honest. Jesus broadened the scope because he knows that adulterous relationship begin not with the act, but with the inappropriate emotional, spiritual, mental intimacy. Men, married men, not flirting with other women. That is not your wife. Single men, Get close to somebody else's wife and vice versa. In order to prevent temptation, I believe, I think the scriptures, would, 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 wisdom would dictate, a certain social detachment needs to be maintained. A married person should not seek emotional support from someone of the opposite sex gender. Whether at the church, at work, or on the internet, guard your hearts, guard your your marriage. Nurture your love and intimacy emotionally, spiritually, physically with your covenant spouse. Okay? Some of you need to hear this. Let me say three quick things. We'll move on to the next and we'll end. Number one. Guys, ladies, if you're single and you're hooked to pornography, there's help, first of all. You can email me privately, call me privately. There are programs you can get involved. We have even bought one here at the church. But if you think for a moment that getting married is going to cure you, it's not. That's a myth. It's a myth. Okay? 
it's absolutely a myth. Addiction in particular to pornography is a sinful and destructive way of dealing with, trying to relieve and cope with personal pain with physical pleasure. When we hurt, rejected, empty, fear, lonely, we're tempted to gain relief by physical senses. I'm not gonna, again, we got kids here, and it's irresistible. Dr. Larry Crabb writes this. This is wonderful. The bodily pleasure, I gotta be careful. The bodily pleasure of sexual release convincingly counterfeits, at least for the moment, the personal joy of true security, true significance. Rather than relieving or resolving the personal problems that result from rejection and criticism, sexual pleasure merely uh, camouflages the pain and physical sensation. What begins as an effort to relieve a problem ends with Not in real solutions, but additional problems like guilt and rationalization, enslavement. The point, he says, sex provides a physical solution for a personal problem. The evil thing is it works so good, end quote. There's help for you. Number two, if you're dating, some of y'all not married, maybe you'll be dating in the future. Don't ask, how far can I go? Anybody been youth ministry? I'm sure they heard that before. How far can I go without really crossing the line? The Bible doesn't say exactly, obviously, touching private parts is out. But the problem with that question is the question. The real problem is the question. Instead of wondering, what can I get away with? We ought to be asking, how can I protect my sexual purity? How can I preserve the sexual purity and the joy of the person whom I love? Am I relating to them as someone who's created in the Imago Dei, a child of God? Am I honoring that person's body? Those are the questions. If we ask, how far can I go? That's a selfish question. That's about you. What I can get, not what I can give. And lastly, men, we're called to not rule over women. We're called to rule over our lusts. Ladies, I love you. Be careful. Guys too, but ladies, be careful. In an emotional affair. Right? Be careful. That's serious and destructive. The Bible says dress modestly. I'm not not blaming you for the lust of men. I am not. Men bear the primary responsibility, but not the entire responsibility. Scripture says dress modestly. Okay? That's a hard word, I know. But I love you, God loves you, and it's something to think and consider and to pray. But let's end with the gospel. I'm saying all along that when we look at the law of God, we see his, his perfect character, his, his attributes. It is a reflection of the lawgiver. But also we've been saying that it also reflects the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? His work on the cross and his, his person and his work, I should say. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is what? The bridegroom. And we, the church, are his bride. Bridegroom and bride. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 5. I have some of the verses up there, but I'm going back a little bit to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, the church, he himself is its savior, the church. Now as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself, that's Jesus, up for the church 
that he might sanctify her, set her apart, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing that he might be holy, that she might be holy, the church might be holy and without blemish. You see what Paul does? Paul is talking about marriage, about husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Christ, is, he is the, the ultimate faithful, the ultimate faithful bridegroom to the bride, the church. He loves, he cleanses her. Listen, the only reason the church, it could be presented spotless and blameless is because of Jesus and the work of the cross that we can be holy and without blemish. And the significance of marriage then must be seen in the gospel, in, in Christ's marriage to this bride, the church. Paul goes on, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. You see this analogy. Because we are members of his body, therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother. See what he's doing? He's going back to Genesis. And hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Verse 33. If you, do I have that up there? If you can, verse 33. The other verse, I think I... However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Somebody back there? Tony, I don't have verse 28, 33 on there? Okay. Can you go back to 28, verse 28, 528? Paul's going back to creation. He's saying there's this, there's this work in creation that God creates man and his woman, and really what that's pointing to as well is what? Is a portrait of the relationship between his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his church, the bride. That's the gospel. Paul calls this relationship a mystery because it was hidden to some degree in Genesis and now it's been revealed to us in the person and the work of Jesus and the gospel. In the same way, husbands love their wives, gives themselves to one another. Wife gives them to the husband. Husband gives himself to her, holding back nothing. God gives himself to us. He gives us his son. And, and we see this marriage and we actually see, if, if, if you look even just into the analogy, the sexual union between a husband and wife is somewhat transcendent. That's why, now listen really carefully to this statement. It is not an exaggeration. It is not an exaggeration to say that the gospel, the good news, the truth of the gospel, that the gospel is at stake in our definition of marriage. The gospel itself is at stake in our definition of marriage. Paul links the gospel of Christ and the church to the expression of a Christian covenantal marriage, which finds its fulfillment in one husband and one wife coming together in this distinguished union. The mystery is that the union of Christ and the church finds expression a man and a woman becoming one flesh in the covenant of marriage. When a man loves and cares and provides and leads and sacrifices for his wife as Christ does the church, and the woman submits and respects as the church does, it reflects the gospel. 
Paul did not foresee two individuals of any gender acting as Christ in the church, but rather as the husband cherishes the wife, as the wife respects the husband. It is a reflection of the union of Jesus and his church. Kevin D. Young said this, we cannot insert two men or two women into the logic of Ephesians 5 and get the same mystery, let alone the same full-orbed picture of the gospel, end quote. As I said earlier, the Old Testament shows God over and over talking about this relationship between him and his people, this, this husband, this wife relationship, this kind of, this kind of uh, relationship in this marriage that has taken place. When God's people were unfaithful, they broke their love covenant with him. They were guilty of committing spiritual adultery. Major, major implication for our sexuality. For every act that we see and do in sin of sexual morality is really offense against God. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, Paul told the Corinthians, but for the Lord and the Lord for his body. Do not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? This union our bodies are in Christ, Christ is in us, and sexual marriage is a sin against the Son of God. Paul continues, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he unites himself? See, that oneness, that unique oneness in marriage. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it says that two shall become one flesh. That's the procreation. That's, that's the, uh, the consummation. The two shall become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. For Christians to have sex with someone who's not my covenantal spouse is to violate the holiness of their union with Christ. we, We demonstrate this loyalty, this covenantal reality to God by maintaining our sexual fidelity to our spouse. Since against the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul writes, flee sexual immorality. Everything else, all of the sins committed are outside the body. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Whom you receive from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a pride. Honor God. Glorify God with your body. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We belong to him. Christ's spirit now dwells within us. And there's a sense in which that is a violation of that. And some people say, well, I had this conversation this week. Well, isn't sin sin? Sin is sin. I mean, if you, I, I won't argue with that. Sin is sin, right? But listen, not all sin is equally damning, but all sin is, e- all sin is not equally, is equally damning, separation from God. All sin is equally damning, but not all sin is equally devastating. Adultery and sexual sin and the consequences to it is different than speeding, Murder and terrorism is different than stealing a candy bar. All sin is equally damning, but not all sin is equally devastating. So let me say this, and we'll close. Look to the gospel. Look to the portrait. Look to the analogy. Look to the reality of the church, the bride, and the bridegroom, Jesus. When we're confronted with the truth and, and when we are guilty of sexual sin, abandoning Christ, unfaithful uh, to him, who is our faithful husband, guilty of adulterous thoughts, sexual sin, even unbiblical divorce, flee, run to Christ. He is the faithful one who never, never, ever looked with a woman, any woman with lust. He never, ever was guilty of sexual transgression. He is the only faithful 
one to his bride, the church loving her, laying his life down for her, shedding his blood for her, absorbing the wrath for her. Paul says he's cleansed us and washed us and sanctified us. He bore the condemnation and judgment and wrath that we deserve and the curse was put on him. The problem, family, is this. It's not that our passions are too strong. Some of you think, I have this passion. It's so strong, I can't help it. No, it's not that our passions are too strong. Its problem is our passions and desires are too weak. For we settle for adultery, fornication, pornography, when we can have a covenant with our God and a covenant with our spouse. We need to be more passionate and nourish the deepest desire of Christ and the gospel. The problem is not that our desires are too strong, but they are too weak. We need to see the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the incalculable worth, and the magnificence of Jesus and the gospel. Forgives us of our sins and will satisfy the longing and heal the brokenness of our hearts. I'm going to call the band up and I want to share one thing with you as the band comes up. There's, you can Google this if you want later on. It's called this. There's a sermon by a, man by a man by the name of Thomas Chalmers. C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S. Thomas Chalmers. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Email me, text me, I'll send it to you. And his point is this. Our hearts are always chasing affections. Always. And we can't just take it down because something's got to be in its place. And he says the only thing that could be in its place, that's worthy of being in its place, that removes all of the powers and desires and, and has one main affection, one great affection, is the glory and the beauty of Christ and the gospel. You got to see that. You got to love and cherish that. I have to love and cherish that. And run to that. Cling to that. See the beauty and glory of the gospel. Where there's forgiveness of sins and where our affections can be inflamed to love, to worship our great God and Savior. Our number, my cell phone, my email, any other pastoral staff, we're here for you. We love you. We want to help you. If you have any questions, just call us. Father, we thank you for all that you are doing, all that you have done. We know and believe your word that says that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We believe when your word tells us that you have not only raised him from the dead, but you sent your Holy Spirit to bring us to the reality of our sin, but also to bring application of the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. So, Father, we pray right now as we continue to worship in music, that you would work in our hearts. God, that we would not be alone in this. We have brothers and sisters who care about us and love us and help us, Lord, so that we may walk in the purity and not lust. And, Lord, that we would have freedom and not bondage. And we would experience forgiveness, not guilt. We love you, Lord. Because you first loved us. And we pray now that the gospel would take deeper root in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.